I'd like to direct you to uh, this morning are found once again in the book of Daniel. We'll be looking at Daniel chapter 5. Belshazzar, the king, held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking together. The king called aloud to bring in the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. The king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, Any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me shall be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, But they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. Then the king Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His face grew even paler and his nobles were perplexed. The queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. And the queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king names Belteshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare its interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who is one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? Now I have heard about you that a spirit of the gods is in you, and that an illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. Just now the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me that they might read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me, but they could not declare the interpretation of the message. But I personally have heard about you, that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now, if you're able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck, and you will have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom." Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. O king, the Most High God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar your father. 
because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed, and whomever he wished, he spared alive. And whomever he wished, he elevated, and whomever he wished, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne, and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind, and his heart was made like that of beasts. And his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this, but you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. And they have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines have been drinking wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand. But the God in whose hand are your life breath, and all your ways you have not glorified. Then the hand was sent from him, and this inscription was written out. Now, this is the inscription that was written out. Mene, mene, tekal, uparsin. This is the interpretation of the message. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekal, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave orders. And they clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. That same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Lord, we need these reminders. We need reminders of who you are. And so we thank you that you've given us your word and revelation. And Lord, my my personal request was that you would help me to be a faithful servant. To rightly explain it. So that your people would be fed and strengthened and nourished and shaped and challenged according to the various needs that they have. Spirit, work through your word to prepare us to be a people that are set apart for you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It struck me that the song that we sang right after the pastoral prayer, The Glorious Christ, that first stanza speaks of the fact that God has displayed His glory throughout all of the universe. And it stood out to me because my uh, introduction really starts with an aspect of our universe that's actually relatively unknown, and that being of black holes. Astronomers tell us that um, on the edge of a black hole, that edge is called an event horizon. And every particle that crosses that event horizon um, is inextricably sucked down to the bottom of this black hole. In fact, that process of being... um, sucked down is actually what they call spaghettification. It's spaghettified. Not, not just 
um, whatever might come close to it, starlight or whatever, but the particles themselves actually get stretched out. And so if you were to uh, cross an event horizon, you would be strung out like string, even the particles of you, until you are sucked all the way down into the core of the black hole that is called a singularity. And it's this one-dimensional point at the bottom where they theoretically believe that density and gravity become infinite and space-time actually curves infinitely and, and where the laws of physics as we know it make no sense. Kind of a scary thing if you think about it. But it's even, I think, scarier thing to, to pause and recognize God created millions, possibly billions of these black holes in an instant. And they're nothing to him. He controls every particle that crosses an event horizon or that escapes them. And again, the edge of the black hole is called an event horizon because it's a boundary beyond which events cannot be observed by an observer. That is, we we can't see what happens on the other side. And so a lesson to learn, if you go to space traveling, you don't want to get near a black hole, but if you do, you definitely don't want to cross an event horizon. You want to avoid crossing that line. And similarly, this passage demonstrates that there is a line with God that you do not want to cross. And Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, crosses it. And he pays a dear price. In fact, this passage actually contrasts the mercy of God on Nebuchadnezzar that we've seen really throughout the last four chapters with how he responds to Belshazzar and his arrogance. Two very different responses. God will show mercy and compassion even as he um, causes one to be born again and to repent and praise him and worship him as he deserves. But he will also not tolerate defiant arrogance against him. Now it's helpful to understand the historical context. Daniel at this point is probably around 80 years old. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar has long since passed away. Uh, one of his descendants, I don't think it's a direct descendant, but um, within the, the royal family uh, is now king. His name is Nabonidus. So actually the king of Babylon is actually a man by the name of Nabonidus. Well, Nabonidus was a pretty powerful ruler, but his, his kingdom started to be invaded by the Medes and the Persians. So he went out to battle against them. But he lost. Now, Belshazzar is back in um, Babylon. Belshazzar is Nabonidus' son. So he's actually number two in the kingdom. Nabonidus has been captured by the Medes and the Persians. So now Belshazzar, he doesn't know it, but he's really the man in charge. And when he offers even to make Daniel the third man in the kingdom, he's offering him actually a, to be part of a triumvirate, a, 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 a group of leaders, three people to rule the kingdom. So this is an awesome thing that he offers Daniel. Well, anyhow, Belshazzar assumes that Debonibus is, is off to conquer these invading Persians. And, and so he's just going to rest inside Babylon, confident that he's going to be safe because Historians tell us that Babylon was incredibly secure. In fact, the, the river Euphrates flowed through the city itself, giving it a, a, an infinite water supply, so to speak. 
Moreover, it had enough supplies, they, they'd say, to last a siege over two years. And, and it's just not a city that's going to be taken easily. And so Belshazzar is just absolutely confident he's safe. And most likely the party that is described here in these opening verses is probably um, begun as a show of a lack of fear. That he's content, that they can, they can actually feast and rejoice in the face of this siege that is begun by the Persians as they surround Babylon. Belshazzar saying, I don't fear these guys. I don't fear anybody. In fact, we're going to worship all these various gods. But he's wrong. He should fear. Simple outline for today's message. The folly inspired by alcohol. I don't have a clicker. I forgot to grab one. You can do it? Okay, great. Thanks, Christiana. The folly inspired by alcohol. Uh, the terror of divine wrath. Thirdly, the value of accurate interpretation. And then fourthly, the severity of God's judgment. If you like more application-oriented outlines, here's another one for you. Recognize the dangers of alcohol. Recognize the consequences of rebellion against God. Also recognize the, the value of accurate interpretation and fourthly, recognize your responsibility to communicate clearly the severity of God's wrath. Let's look, first of all, at, at this folly that is inspired by alcohol. This point, the fact that this is the point of these four verses is seen in the repetition. Notice verse 1, drinking wine. Verse 2, taste of the wine. Might drink. The wise and concubines drink. They drank the wine in verse 4. The writer is making a point by this repetition. The reason Belshazzar commits this great act of folly is because he was inspired by alcohol. If I could say it another simple way, alcohol makes people do stupid things. That's what the, that's what the writer is wanting us to recognize. Now, it, it may be true that the Bible does not prohibit the drinking of alcohol. There's no command that says, do not drink alcohol. I know that, that Jesus drank alcohol, right? He drank wine, turned water into wine even. Timothy is exhorted to drink a little wine for his stomach. So there's no command that forbids drinking alcohol. However, there are plenty of warnings in Scripture about the dangers associated with consuming alcohol. And this is one of the most vivid. When a person drinks alcohol, what happens is they're putting themselves in danger of Temptation. Um, the our inhibitions. Anybody that's ever had alcohol knows this. Our inhibitions are uh, numbed. It isn't a sin, but it removes the barriers of protection on our soul. So we're commanded to guard our hearts with all diligence. Well, this is not guarding the heart. We're commanded to be on the alert, to be sober-minded. But when we drink alcohol, it's like telling the guardians of our soul, it's okay, you can fall asleep. Or it's like letting down the drawbridge and inviting anyone and everyone to come in. You're not checking IDs, come on in, we're good. And so it's not sinful, but it's very risky. And that's why the Bible exhorts believers, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Why? Because, again, drugs and alcohol tempt us to do stupid things. 
Things that we will deeply regret. In fact, some of my friends, and probably some of you too, some of your, your, the things that you are most ashamed of happened on account of your uh, inhibitions being numbed. You chose to do something you would not have done in your right mind. And now you can never forget the memory of that sin. And this is also why elders and deacons and their wives are not to be lovers of alcohol. And it was the drinking of wine that led Belshazzar to commit one of the stupidest acts in all of history. It, it, it is what inspired him to command for the vessels of, uh, that were in the temple of Jerusalem to be brought. And not only was he going to uh, praise the gods of gold and silver, gods that he knew were not real gods in contrast to the God of heavens that had humbled his father Nebuchadnezzar, Father in the sense of, like we speak of our, our fathers, our, our nation's fathers, not his actual father. But he's boasting in these false gods, forgetting what he already knew about the God that he's mocking. And he's defiling the vessels that were used for worship in the temple. Why would you do something so stupid? Well, the point of the text is, is because he was drinking alcohol. And this was a direct act of defiance against God. And just to appreciate the folly of this act, just recall that Nadab and Abihu were slain immediately for a far lesser crime. Uzzah, wanting to keep the ark of the Lord from falling into a mud, reaches out and grabs it and he's immediately slain because he touched a holy object. This is a pagan king boasting in false gods, drinking from vessels that were used in the holy temple. It's immensely foolish. And it's a direct act of defiance. And in doing so, he has crossed the line with God. And he is going to pay dearly for it. And not just him, the whole kingdom. Now, it's easy for us to shake our heads at the stupidity of Belshazzar. But I think it's also helpful to be reminded that we as Christians are also temples of the Holy Spirit. First Corinthians 6.19 Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So just consider, have you recently listened to Explicit music with filthy lyrics. Watched sexually explicit material. Have you listened to humor that was off color and inappropriate? Have you slandered another Christian or even spoken in a disparaging way to another Christian? Recognizing that other believers are in fact temples of the Holy Spirit... Is, would really sober us in how we treat one another. Whether they're people that we know or whether they're people in another church, in another nation. This is a doctrine I think that we really need to come to with the better grasp of. And we would demonstrate we understand that in the way that we treat one another. We are not just people. 
We are temples of the living God. And God says in 1 Corinthians 3.17, If anyone destroys my temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. And, and, and the context there is about the Corinthians who are arguing and fighting amongst one another on these really peripheral issues. I mean, if, they were, if, they, if Corinth was around today, they'd be arguing over masks and laws, I'm sure. And this church is disintegrating. And Paul says, do you not know that on account of something so trivial, you are destroying God's church? You are attacking temples of the Holy Spirit? Do you not know what you're doing? God's point is that an attack on the king's servants is like an attack on the king himself. So we need to be sober even in how we consider one another, recognizing we too are temples. Whereas the, the emphasis of the first four verses was on the defiling of the vessels being inspired by alcohol, the next six verses turns to the terror of judgment. Look at verses 5 through 10. It says suddenly that this, this giant hand appears and writes this inscription on the wall, three words, Menetikal Perez or Uparsin. And then notice what the text emphasizes. Verse 6, the king's face grew pale and his thoughts alarmed him and his hip joints went slack. His knees began knocking together. Verse 9, King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His face grew even paler. And then verse 10, the queen mother exhorts Belshazzar, do not let your thoughts alarm you. Do not let your face be pale. Do you see what's being emphasized? He is scared out of his mind. He is terrified. And I would be too. I mean, I probably would soil my shorts if all of a sudden I saw some band immediately flash on the wall out of nowhere. I mean, I've been scared by far lesser things, little noises in the middle of the night. Screechings outside my window. What is that? He has every right. It's absolutely appropriate for him to be scared. And frankly, God means for it to be terrifying. He's trying not only to scare him in making a point that what you did was crossing the line. He's wanting everybody in the kingdom to recognize this as well. And to some, God's actions might seem a bit surprising here. And I, because many people today think of God solely in terms of like this giant Santa Claus who's just kind and merciful and has nothing but goodness and love to share with all of creation. And tr- tr- truly, God is kind and gracious and merciful. In fact, more than anything or anybody in the rest of creation. There is no more merciful, kind, loving being than God. It's true. He is that. But that's not all there is to say about God. He is also holy. He cannot tolerate any evil in his sight. In fact, no one can look upon the face of God and live. And it wasn't for no reason that God showed up on Mount Sinai, as he reveals himself to his people, he shows up in a black cloud of fire and smoke, of thunder and lightning. Why? Because he wants his people to, to realize just how kind and wonderful and loving and 
warm he is. No, he's trying to communicate a point. I am holy, and therefore you need to be holy. What God wants his people to understand first and foremost is he is a holy God and demands to be worshipped by a holy people. And there are consequences for not treating him as holy. It wasn't for no reason that God sent his son likewise to die on a cross. Because the very consequences for our sin demand the shedding of blood. Think about that. We talk about blood a lot. We sing about the blood. Think about that. What, what is signified by the blood? Death. The wages of sin is death. God demands death for any soul that dies. Or sorry, for any soul that sins. Think about that. On account of your sin, God requires your blood. You must die. And that's why the Son of God was crucified, because that was the awful price for our salvation. That's what it would cost. God could not just simply wipe out our sins. Oh, I'll just forget about it and come give you a big hug. No, a price had to be paid, and that's how awful our sin was. That's the price that had to be paid. His son. I mean, we don't want our sons to be upset. Right? So go play with the sound system. We want to keep you happy. Right? That's how we are. We want our children. <laughs> we want our children to be happy. God loved his son more than any of us has loved our son. And yet that was the cost of our salvation. Because God is holy. And so those who are outside of Christ not only deserve to die, but to bear the wrath of God for all eternity. So God, we need to recognize God does not look upon unbelievers as like these little lost orphaned kittens that just need somebody to come rescue them. No, they're his enemies. They are treacherous. They are traitors. They have rebelled against him. They are what Ephesians 2 says, children of wrath. God is as fond as unbelievers as Aragorn and Legolas are as fond as of orcs. Or the Navy SEAL is as fond as uh, of, of ISIS. They're enemies that must be destroyed. And they will be destroyed unless they turn to Christ and find refuge. And so if you're outside of Christ today and you know it, recognize that incredible peril you are in. Recognize how desperate you are for a Savior. And God has provided it for you. But you must turn to Him. Many people assume that the Great Awakening that took place in our, in our nation hundreds of years ago uh, was begun by a sermon by Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angel of God, probably the most famous sermon ever preached. But actually, according to Edwards' own account, it wasn't that sermon, but God began to work in, a, in, a, in this revival initially through the death of a couple of young people. To give you the, set, the, the story, Edwards, for a long period of time, had been greatly concerned about the, um, 
inappropriate behavior of the young people in the town of New Haven. And he had preached a number of of sermons warning the people, uh, uh, particularly the youth, about what they called frolicking. They'd go out in the evening um, when everybody goes to bed and do what youths do in the evening. And this was often tolerated and actually even condoned by many of the parents. And Edwards was, would plead and warn of the folly of such behavior. But he wasn't taken seriously, right? It's easy to go, oh, it's just a pastor, the old fuddy-duddy. He just doesn't want us to have any fun. And then a young man in the prime of his health had a, caught an, a lung disease and died within two weeks. And people took notice. And then shortly thereafter, a young lady was also killed, who was also in her prime. And then people started coming out of the woodwork and coming to church, seeking counseling. Edwards, tell us, what must I do to be saved? And that started to spread. People started to realize there is a consequence for sin. And I think often what keeps so many people from coming to Christ is because they just don't think God is really a threat to them. And it's because we don't realize our mortality. Now we know, yes, I'm going to die someday. But until we come face to face with, the, with what the ultimate consequences of a sin are, and all of a sudden we realize what we're capable of and what we actually deserve, until that point it's so easy just to, to, to ignore the exhortations of repentance. I myself came to repentance in a very similar fashion as these young people in Edwards Town. I do believe I was born again uh, when I was 10 years old, but without discipleship or Bible teaching, I just followed the course of the world like everybody else and full-heartedly with great joy. No shame. Until uh, I was drinking, I, was out, I wasn't drinking, but my, I, I was driving a bunch of my drunk friends who encouraged me to get into a street race. None of them had their seatbelts on, and we started driving down this more or less residential street over 80 miles an hour with this car. It was way over 80 miles an hour in this car. And another car started coming in the same lane that I was in, and we would have had a head-on collision, and everybody would have died if the car in front of me had not driven off the road, saving his life, his wife's life, his pregnant wife's life, my life and all my friends. And, and, and seeing how close I was to killing out of folly, all of my friends shook me to the core. I couldn't, I couldn't sleep. I just kept replaying that image again and again in my mind. I was struck with terror. And at the same time, struck with the mercy of God that he did not strike, that he didn't kill me. He didn't allow me to, to receive the full consequences of my folly. And I realized I needed to repent, and I did. Realizing my mortality sobered me up for my need to turn my life around. And when the terrors of hell and the reality of death finally hit home, people are awakened to their need for Christ. It's easy to think we're immortal until we figure out that we aren't. And Belshazzar has come face to face with his mortality here. And he's terrified. 
And he's desperate for answers. And so he calls for anybody, anybody, come tell me, what, what does this mean? And he's scared. He's getting no answers. He panics until the queen mother shows up and says, there is somebody. There is somebody who can tell you the truth. Let me call him. And Daniel can interpret this sign faithfully. That brings us to the value of accurate interpretation. And that is the point of these verses. Look particularly at the verses 11 and 12. The queen mother tells Belshazzar, there is a man in your kingdom in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. He has illumination, insight, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods. He has an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, solving of difficult problems. He can declare the interpretation. Right? The point is, nobody can do this. These people are being struck with absolute terror. They realize their folly. They realize their mortality. And they're desperate for answers. Who can give us an answer? The one with whom the spirit of the gods dwells. And Daniel's special ability to interpret God's revelation is emphasized again in 14, 15, and 16. And again, to really appreciate this emphasis, it's helpful to remember that the the whole book of Daniel is about what life is going to be like under the rule of pagan, unbelieving Gentiles. In other words, it's going to be bad. Do not expect your best life now. You're going to have evil rulers who just want you to worship them, who want you to serve them. They will leave you alone if you just give them what they want. It will not be good for worshipers of God. It's here to prepare us how to live under ungodly authorities. Daniel is an unromantic, plain speaking, realistic portrayal of what we should expect. Namely, trials, threats, death, persecution. But it also highlights the immense value of biblical wisdom. This is actually, one could argue, the main point that God wants to communicate in the book of Daniel, and I think even here, that the, that the, the role, that accurate interpretation, that wisdom that is inspired by the Holy Spirit serves during the realm of ungodly rulers. What people need when all lights go out is the light of the Word of God. Brothers and sisters, what should you do when the world is against you? Speak the truth is the answer. Hold fast to the word of truth. What matters is the truth. The Bible doesn't say create a revolution, take up arms, stomp your feet, make a lot of noise, demand your rights. No, it says trust God because God raises up those rulers back and he can smack them down anytime he wants. And if God has given us bad rulers, it's because we deserve it or he's going to use it to bring us some good somehow. Trust him. He'll raise them up. He'll put them down. Trust him. And then during the same time, these ungodly rulers, when they realize, oh, my goodness, I'm a fool. I'm going to die. I deserve to die. They're going to be coming looking for answers. Who's going to give them answers? Oprah? Not that any of any substance. These health and wealth preachers? Nope. Who's going to tell them the truth? Like Daniel. That's the point. Daniel 
is going to tell the truth. And not because he's going to get some reward, an immense reward. It's because he's a servant of the living God and he knows his place and he trusts his God. Yeah, this, this reward, it's, it's, it's essentially to become part of a triumvirate. I mean, this would be like the CEO of Apple or Google or whatever massive company or country basically says, I'm going to split all my stocks, all my authority, everything with you. Just, just help me interpret this code. I mean, Belshazzar is terrified. Help me. Give me a word. See, when people are scared, and good night, this world is a scary place. It's really scary. I know we live, we live in the Disneyland of the world, so we don't realize often how frightening it is. But it is scary. And when people are scared, they're going to come asking for truth. Give me something I can trust. And that's why after 9-11, people started flocking to churches. Now, the opposite has happened under COVID, which, man, just shows how far we've drifted. But when people are sobered up to reality and their mortality, they want to hear the word from the Lord. Christian, give me a reason that why you have this hope. Why are you panicking like everybody else? Why are you willing to stand up when everybody else bows down on their face? Why are you willing to risk it all? What does God say about this? So you recognize, brothers and sisters, most of your life, unbelievers, they're not going to care a wink about what you say. They're just, you know, yeah, morality, be good, follow the rules. You know, they don't care what you say unless you're just, they just want you to perform for them. Make them feel good, affirm them, serve them. You know, you are a means to their own glory. But the time's going to come when all that vanity that they've invested their whole life in is just going to come crashing down. And they're going to see the emptiness, the vacuousness, the black hole of their own glory that they have created. And they're going to want answers. Who are they going to turn to? This is where we come in. Brothers and sisters, this is your role. It's to be a light in the midst of a dark and perverse generation. To live in such a way, to speak the truth, that they know who to go to. It's not to be as relevant as you possibly can, to be as cool as you possibly can, so they might think that you are trustworthy. They'll know you're trustworthy when everybody else is scared out of their minds and you alone have peace like a river. They will know because they'll see it in their eyes. They're going to come to somebody who's willing to tell them the truth about what God's word rather than simply offer up flattery and platitudes when their child is on their deathbed. When they, they're told they have cancer. When they hear a family member just got into a serious accident. And they, and they realize there's, there's no amount of money, there's no amount of action that's going to save their situation. They're going to come to you. And this is what we should live for. These moments, these opportunities. Again, not to impress them with our intellect, our our cultural awareness, 
our expertise at our jobs. Again, those things aren't bad. But what people need to see from us is the sincerity of our faith and the fact that we speak the truth. Not because we're trying to win friends, but because we care about souls. So that when it all comes crashing down, and it will, they will know. So in short, just, just seek to be faithful with your life. Seek to speak the truth. Just seek to honor God. Serve Him, as it says in Colossians chapter 4 about slaves serving your masters. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Respect your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Lord, just live the Christian life. Speak the truth to unbelievers. And when the time comes, be ready. Have a hair trigger readiness when you see somebody's life start to fall apart that you're ready to bring a word of hope. That's our role under the realm of the Gentiles. And these verses highlight the value of Daniel's ability to interpret what God has revealed. In fact, this is emphasized nearly every verse in this section. It's also emphasized in the reward that's offered to Daniel. I'll make you a third person, a third ruler, one of three in the kingdom. But all the money, all the accolades that Belshazzar might offer Daniel, none of it's going to save him. He's already crossed the line. And when he asked Daniel for interpretation, Daniel gives him a direct interpretation. And it's all judgment. The next section begins with Daniel absolutely rejecting the reward for his services. And this is no passing comment, by the way. This is emphasizing how to know a faithful interpreter of the Word of God. Are they there to communicate clearly that they want a person to know what God says, or is there something in it for them? They aren't in it for themselves. They care more about communicating the message faithfully than how people receive the message. See, Daniel doesn't want any of this exquisite swag that's offered to him. He says, keep it. He just wants to accurately explain the revelation. And notice... Notice just how honest Daniel is. There's nothing flattering about Daniel's interpretation. He doesn't say, oh, Belshazzar, I can see you are scared. I see you're scared, but realize God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. He doesn't say, Belshazzar, don't, don't you realize you hurt God and he wants you to know that you hurt him. But know that he's also, he's pursuing you and he, he just wants you to pay attention to him and treat him nicely. He doesn't even say, Nebuchadnezzar, what you did was bad. But there's a wideness in God's mercy. He doesn't say that because that's not true in regard to Belshazzar. In fact, there's no mercy. What Daniel preaches is pure undiluted judgment. Belshazzar, you've gone too far. You're done. And Daniel reminds Belshazzar of what happened in Nebuchadnezzar. And he gets to the point in verse 22. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. 
But you exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, and stone, which do not see, hear, understand, but the God in whose hand is your life, breath, and all your ways you have not glorified. And then he goes immediately to give the interpretation. Mene mene tekal uparsin, which basically means you're done. You're done. No mercy. You had your chance. You've crossed the line, and there is no going back. Now, don't misunderstand me here. This doesn't mean that God's not merciful. He's extremely merciful, but he has his limits. And this is the point of this judgment. There is a line that we can cross wherein there is no going back. Look at verse 30. That same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about age of 62. Well, how, was this, how was this kingdom? I thought it was, had stores that would last two years. How was this kingdom taken so quickly? Moreover, how could the city get completely captured in just one evening? I mean, even today with all our modern weaponry, we can't capture a city in one day. How did this happen? Well, we're told by actually other uh, unbelieving historians. Herodotus in particular explains, also Xenophon records this, but it happened by the Persians ended up damming up the river Euphrates that ran directly into the city. And they, you know, curved the water into a lake. And then wading about waist deep into the river, they just marched right on through into the city. And you're thinking, well, good night. They should have seen them coming in. I mean, it's a whole army. Why didn't anybody see these Persian soldiers marching into the city? Well, Greek historian Herodotus tells us, quote, If the Babylonians had learnt what Cyrus was doing or had seen it for themselves in time, they could have let the Persians enter. And then by shutting all the gates which led to the river, they could have caught them in a trap and wiped them out. But as it was, they were taken by surprise. The Babylonians themselves say that owing to the great size of the city, the outskirts were captured without the people in the middle of the city knowing anything about it. There was a festival going on and they continued to dance and enjoy themselves until they learned the news the hard way. End quote. God was setting this up in motion years before. And just as it was important for Daniel to clearly communicate the severity of God's judgment, this is the point. It's, it's imperative upon us to clearly communicate the severity of God's judgment to our unbelieving friends and family members and to strangers. In fact, if you know that right now you're not following Christ, it's incumbent upon me to clearly communicate to you 
the severity of God's wrath that you deserve. Well, you might be thinking, good night, I didn't come to church to hear about the wrath of God. Well, I realize that. But God has you here because you need to hear about it. God brought you here. Just like he raised up Cyrus, just like he raised up Belshazzar, he has brought you here so that you could hear about it. Because that's what you need to hear. You need to realize the plight that you are in. So that you might finally realize your danger and turn and trust in him. Realize this might be the final turning point in your life. We don't know how much God's going to tolerate from us. And we don't want to presume upon his mercy like Belshazzar did. This may be your last chance. I hope it's not if you reject him. But it might be. And then you would know for the rest of eternity, as you suffer under his wrath, that you had the chance. You had that moment. It was offered to you. And you will recall, you were this close. You thought about doing, you thought about asking God, God, please forgive me. God, please change my heart. But you didn't. Why? Because you wanted to hang on to that unbelieving boyfriend. You wanted to keep drinking. You didn't want to give up this sin or that sin. You will know for all of eternity, you chose that over eternal glory with God and forgiveness. You asked for this suffering. And you will know it. Well, maybe you're thinking, yes, maybe, but I know my heart and I know how fickle I am. And yes, maybe right now, because it's, it's clear to me, I'm, I, I have a greater sense of my mortality. I, I have a greater sense of the wrath of God. But I know once I leave this room, I might fall back into my patterns of sin. Well, that, that, I appreciate that honesty. That may be true. But you also need to recognize what God asks is just that you would have faith as a mustard seed. Do you realize that you are a sinner and that you deserve the wrath of God? Do you realize that Christ alone can save you from that sin? And there's nothing that you can do to save your soul. If you realize those things, then turn to Him. Cry out to Him. Ask Him to save you. Even now, as I close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, if there is anybody here that still is fast bound in sin, that has no affection for you, that doesn't realize the reality of your sovereign power and your wrath and your anger and their desperate need for you, that you would open their eyes that they might come to you and they might realize the freedom, the freedom from sin, the wisdom, the peace, the joy that surpasses all understanding that comes from the power of your Spirit. Open their eyes just as you have opened our eyes. Lord, every single Christian here, you have mercifully saved You've opened our eyes and you've caused us to be born again. And, and now Christ, we can say, is our all in all. And Lord, we would lose it all if necessary. And do whatever it takes to follow you because we owe you everything. 
And so it's in Christ's name we praise these things. Amen.